Good morning, good evening, and good night. Wherever you are, this is your host, Mohamed Halaiba. Summary, my attempt for this podcast is to make studying for the core exam is more palatable, given that we're all studying for it during our fourth year. This is not an exciting time to be studying for the board, especially that we have almost nearly completed studying for it last year. The way this episode will work or these podcasts will work is I will post an episode every day that would be no longer than 20 minutes. The episodes will contain random high-yield facts. These facts are random in purpose because I would like them to simulate the actual test where we get asked different things, uh, every single question on different topics. Correction of errata, if there are any, I will do that in the show notes. If there is a huge mistake or something uh, wrong, I will correct it in the upcoming episode. I might later on do specific episodes for uh, important topics such as... uh, physics, but this would be later on and if there is a demand for it. Finally, you can reach out to me through Twitter or email at Mohamed Halaiba uh, for Twitter, M-O-H-A-M-M-A-D, last name Halaiba, H-A-L-A-I-B-E-H, and email is mhalaiba, M-H-A-L-A-I-B as in boy, E-H, at gmail.com. Thank you. We'll get started. mitochondrial encephalomyelopathy with lactic acidosis and stroke-like episodes. This is MILAS, and the name really explained the whole pathology. So encephalopathy due to, related to mitochondrial disease with lactic acidosis and stroke-like symptoms. This typically involves the parieto-occipital and parietotemporal lobes. On imaging, particularly MRI, we'll see diffusion restriction involving these lobes. Can be bilateral, symmetrical, can be asymmetrical. The key thing is it's a relapsing and remitting disorder that, or the episode, they will come and go. Again, mitochondrial encephalomyelopathy with lactic acidosis and stroke-like episodes involves the parieto-occipital and parieto-temporal lobe. It's a relapse in disorder on MRI. We'll see diffusion restriction. We'll see T2 bright signal. We might see areas of hemorrhages or uh, swelling. For MRI spectroscopy, the following agents are associated with what? NAA or N-acetylaspartate. This is a marker of neuronal viability. So it will go down in cancer. Creatinine. Creatinine is marker for normal cellular metabolism, so it will go down in cancer. Choline is a marker for cell membrane destruction, and it will go up in cancer. Lactate is a marker of anaerobic pathway, and it will go up in cancer. And finally, alanine is marker for meningioma. Again, NAA is marker for neuronal viability. Creatinine is a marker for normal cellular metabolism. Choline is a marker for membrane turnover or destruction. Goes up in cancer. Lactate, marker for anaerobic pathway and will go up in cancer. Finally, alanine is a marker associated for meningioma. Type of urethral cancer seen in the following location. In the prosthetic urethra, we typically see transitional cell cancer. In the bulbar or penile urethra, we see squamous cell cancer. And in the midline lesion, particularly urethral diverticulum, we see adenocarcinomas. Again, in a prosthetic urethra, we typically see transitional cell cancer. In the bulbar or penile urethra, we'll see 
squamous cell cancer, and midline diverticulum or diverticulum will see adenocarcinoma. For breast MRI, what are the washout kinetic types? So we have three washout kinetics. We have persistent or type 1, which we see increased accumulation of radio tracer with time. We'll see plateaus, the second type or type 2, where the there is no increase in accumulation of radio tracer, but there is no washout either. And finally, washout kinetics, and this is decreasing the concentration of radio tracer over time, and this is uh, the high-risk category with washout. Because it's high metabolism rate, it's washing out the blood, then getting new blood, which is suspicious for malignancy. Imaging features of ILC on mammography Typically, buzzwords used include dark star or shrinking breast. The shrinking breast descriptor does not really mean that the breast is decreasing in size physically or in physical appearance. Rather, it's a mammographic finding because the breast does not compress. And it's hard because of the fibrous tissue, so it looks smaller than the other breast. Finally, on ultrasound, we'll have shadowing without AMS. So mammography will have dark star or shrinking breast signs. On ultrasound, we'll have shadowing without AMS. On MRI, there isn't really particular feature features for uh, ILC. There is washout is not particularly helpful, and axillary metastasis are less common with ILC. Again, dark star or shrinking breast on mammography, shadowing without AMS on ultrasound, MRI no particular findings, particularly there is no washout kinetics or washout kinetics are not helpful. And axillary metastasis is less common than IDC. Continuing with the breast theme, what gets a BIRAD 3 on MRI? A solitary focus less than 5 millimeter with persistent kinetics on a baseline exam gets a BIRAD 3 on MRI. Um, quick mention that you never give a BIRAD 0 for an MRI because there isn't really a better imaging modality than MRI unless you're missing a sequence and you need to repeat that sequence you don't typically give a BIRAD zero. For infectious workup what is the role of endium and gallium? So endium is good for abdominal and pelvic infections because it has delayed bowel activity. Gallium is good for evaluating the spine or diffuse pulmonary process or lymphocyte mediated infections. Again, indium is good for abdominal pelvic infections because of delayed bowel activity. Gallium is good for evaluating the spine or diffuse pulmonary process and lymphocyte-mediated infection. The way I think of indium, if you think of Indian food, is really spicy, and your gut does not want to absorb all this spicy food, so it has a delayed bowel activity. Uh, not a great mnemonic, but it helps me differentiate indium from gallium. Bony lesions. What is chondromyxoid fibroma? It's an osteolytic lesion in the proximal tibia that looks very similar to an ossifying fibroma. Obviously, I'm not giving a full description here on purpose, and the idea is to give you small facts that you can remember or look up. Difference between Rathke's cleft cyst and craniopharyngioma. So, Rathke's cleft cyst is a cyst. Important features to remember that a cyst does not enhance and a cyst does not calcify. Craniopharyngioma has calcifications, creatinine, cholesterol, and it always enhances and typically is seen as a separate from the pituitary versus the Rethke's cleft cyst is typically inseparable from the pituitary. Again, a cyst does not enhance, a cyst does not calcify craniopharyngioma, calcify 
or has calcifications and it enhances pulmonary vein recess. Now, these are recesses or fluid-filled uh, structures surrounding the uh, pulmonary veins or pulmonary arteries around the heart. Typically, they contain small amount of fluid. Key thing is to distinguish saying this is not a pericardial effusion. Rather, it's a normal fluid collection, and it's not an abnormal structure on imaging or on questions. Sometimes they'll point an arrow to it and say, what is this pathology or what is this abnormal structure? If it's a fluid density around a pulmonary vein or pulmonary artery, we can consider it a normal uh, pulmonary vein recess or cardiac recess. Differential for cavitary pulmonary nodule or lesion. So the mnemonic is cavity. C stands for cancer, particularly squamous cell cancer. A is for autoimmune disease. This includes Wagner's granulomatosis, rheumatoid arthritis, sarcoidosis. V for vascular process, particularly septic emboli. I for infection, particularly TB. T is for trauma such as pneumatocele, and finally, Y is for young adults, such as CCAM. Cavity, cancer, autoimmune, vascular, which is septic emboli, and infection, such as TB. Finally, trauma is pneumatocele, and Y, young adults for CCAM. Again, these are the differential for a cavitary lung nodule. You have a patient that comes in with irregular thin-walled pulmonary cysts, and a fat-containing renal mass. What's the diagnosis? This is tuberous sclerosis with the irregular pulmonary cysts and macroscopic fat in the renal mass consistent with AML. So small cysts in the lungs and fat-containing adrenal ma- renal mass, not adrenal, fat-containing renal mass is consistent with tuberous sclerosis. The thin lung cysts are associated with TB and AML is also associated with TB. Continuing with the theme of cystic lung nodules or lung nasals, what is lymphangiomyomatosis or LAM? This is a disease seen in women of childbearing age. It presents, can present with pneumothorax and chylus pleural effusion. Now, the underlying pathology is proliferation of immature smooth muscle cells in small vessels, lymphatics, and bronchioles. So, in bronchioles, it will cause the cyst that we see in the lymphatics, it will cause the chylus pleural effusion because of the obstruction. Again, lymphangioleomyomatosis. This describes the processed lymph angios vessels leomyomatosis, smooth muscle proliferation in the small vessels, lymphatics, and bronchioles. It will present with possible pneumothorax, chylus pleural effusion, typically in a patient with a childbearing age, a female patient with a childbearing age. Now, these cysts are similar to the cysts that we described in the uh, prior question when we said thin lung cyst, did not want to spoil the upcoming question. Now, 1% of patients uh, with tuberous sclerosis will have similar to LAM manifestation. This is not entirely LAM, but it's very similar to it in tuberous sclerosis. When do we see neonatal pneumothorax? This is seen in kids with stiff lungs, typically in chronic pulmonary dysplasia. This is so surfactant deficiency, causes chronic lung injury, persisting, I think, greater than four weeks would be termed chronic pulmonary dysplasia. The stiffness of the lung and being chronically unventilated would result in air rupturing the alveoli and causing the neonatal pneumothorax.
neoplasm of paraganglionic soft tissue arising from the sympathetic glomus bodies or th sympathetic chain. This is typically seen in particular locations in the head and neck. This is paraganglioma or glomus tumor. This is a benign disease but can be locally aggressive. Histologically, this is very similar to extra-adrenal pheochromocytoma because of the sympathetic origin, and there is an association with NF1 and MEN1. Again, neoplasm of paraganglionic tissue arising from these sympathetic uh, glomus bodies. This is paraganglioma or glomus tumor. It is associated with MEN type 1 and neurofibromatosis type 1. Left circumflex coronary artery, what is the path and divisions? The path, it runs in the left coronary sulcus, and it gives off the obtuse marginal branch to the left lateral ventricle. Again, it gives the obtuse marginal branch, and it supplies the left lateral ventricle. Now, notice that the name is obtuse marginal artery, and note there is another artery that we can confuse as the acute marginal artery. The acute arises from the right, and this is not an LCX or left circumflex artery. Uh, it's completely from the right coronary artery. Obtuse marginal artery arises from the left circumflex artery, and the left circumflex artery runs in the left coronary sulcus and supplies the left lateral ventricle. Pneumocystis tuberculosis pneumonia, or PCP. This is pneumonia seen in individuals with CD4 count less than 200. On x-ray, what we see is bilateral perihiral hilar or central airspace opacities with peripheral sparing. On CT scan, what we see is perihiral reticular and ground glass opacities with or without septal thickening. And these opacities may become confluent and produce airspace consolidation. Now, these cysts may be acute or post-infective, and they would be variable in number, size, shape, and distribution. Cysts may coalesce and cause a pneumatocele or predispose to pneumothorax or pneumomediastinum. Again, PCP seen with patients with CD4 count less than 200. On chest x-ray, what we see is bilateral central opacities with peripheral sparing, perihilar in particular. On CT scan, we see reticular and ground glass opacities with or without septal thickening. These opacities may become confluent and produce air consolidation, airspace consolidation. Now, cysts can occur and they can coalesce and form pneumatocele or predispose to pneumothorax or pneumomediastinum. Most common differential or etiology for neonatal respiratory respiratory distress. Again, we're not saying it's the syndrome, we're just stating most common cause for neonatal respiratory distrust. Now, most common cause is transient tachypnea of newborn. This is transient from the name. It has uh, specific risk factors such as maternal asthma or diabetes, male sex, and cesarean delivery. Obviously, stress would produce steroids, and those will help in maturation of the lung and surfactant production. Now, lack of that in cesarean delivery would cause or be one of the etiologies for transient tachypnea of newborn. Obviously, this is a diagnosis of exclusion because the only way we know it, it is transient tachypnea of newborn is when it resolves within 24 to 48 hours after birth with improvement of chest x-ray.
this is a quick process of improvement. Uh, we see pulmonary edema and sequela of pulmonary edema on chest X-ray, and we can see fluid tracking along the fissures or small pleural effusion. Again, this is fluid within the lung due to uh, lack of surfactant production or lack of stress during birth. Etiologies or causes include maternal asthma, diabetes, male sex, and cesarean delivery. I'd like you to envision the following cervical spaces, the pharyngeal mucosal space, masticator space, carotid space, and peripharyngeal space. So it's very important to look these images up and figure out uh, where they are because uh, the location of particular pathologies uh, can be diagnosed based on the location that these uh, the pathology occurs at. So again, pharyngeal mucosal space, masticator space, peripharyngeal space, and carotid space. What's a ganglion cyst? This is a cyst result from the generation of connective tissue associated with the joint capsule or the tendon sheath. They can represent um, synovial herniation or coalescence of small degenerative cysts, typically around the tendon sheath or the joint capsule. They're typically associated with trauma to the uh, you know, affected organ, most commonly seen in the hand and wrist. To summarize, a ganglion cyst is basically myxoid degeneration of connective tissue around the joint capsule or the tendon sheath. These are benign process and they're cystic structures. So on MRI, we will see T2 bright signal. On X-ray, you'll see fluid density signal if they're showing a lateral radiograph of a rest typically. Imaging features of endodermal sinus tumor. This is otherwise known as yolk sac tumor and it presents as strongly enhancing solid mass with varying amount of cystic component and hemorrhage. We also see the bright dot sign, which is a lot of central vessels, intertumoral vessels. Again, endodermal sinus tumor or yellow sac tumor is a strongly enhancing solid mass with varying amount of cystic component and hemorrhage. We see the bright dot sign, which is central intratumoral vessels. Space between the bladder and the pubic bone. This is the space of Ritzes. So a hematoma in the space of Ritzes will result in posterior displacement of the bladder. Typically, a lot of masses or abdominal infection will either displace the bladder anteriorly or inferiorly, but a process, particularly hematoma in the space of Ritzes, can displace the bladder posteriorly. Again, the space of Ritzes is the space anterior to the bladder and posterior to the pubic bone, so between the bladder and the pubic bone. Soft tissues that attach the cervix to the posterior edge of the bladder is known as parametrium. So parametrium is the collection of soft tissue that attach the cervix to the posterior edge of the bladder, parametrium. Ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, pathology capillary leakage of fluid and causing sequestration into third spacing with massive ovarian enlargement. We have three levels of presentation, mild, moderate, and severe ovarian hyperstimulation. In mild ovarian hyperstimulation, what we see is bilateral multicystic ovarian enlargement and no systemic manifestation. In moderate ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, what we see is 
ascites and abdominal distension and in severe ovarian hyperstimulation what we'll see is almost shock state so hypovolemia hemoconcentration thrombosis oliguria and pleural and pericardial effusion obviously this is an emergency again uh, severe ovarian hyperstimulation would present with hypovolemia heme concentration thrombosis oliguria and pleural and pericardial effusion